A visit from Jehovah's Witnesses leads to a discussion about the Trinity in Genesis chapter 1. This is episode 18 of The Mountain and the Word. of Washington State, you are listening to The Mountain and the Word, an audio podcast show from the Mount St. Helens Creation Center, featuring news, views, and information with a biblical and scientific perspective. The Mountain and the Word is produced and presented by creation speaker Paul Taylor and is available for download from our website, mshcreationcenter.org. This is the podcast produced by the Mount St. Helens Creation Centre and uh, we bring it to you via your podcasting software. And this is uh, a unique one because I'm videoing this one as well as simply recording it on audio. Now I'm not sure yet whether that's going to be a permanent feature, whether we'll be able to video all of them and I certainly won't be able to go back and add video to the first 17, they are audio only. But um, uh, it will be produced as an audio file, so it will be in the normal set of audio podcasts. But this one's on video as well. I think it might be useful to show you a few things on video as we go along. But I'm going to explain them as we go along because I know that there are many people who are still going to be just listening via, um, uh, via their normal podcasting software. Now, there have been a number of occasions when I've talked about the subject of the Trinity and how important the Trinity is uh, in our theology. And many people have immediately said, um, well, you know, why are you concentrating on a point of doctrine like that when you're a creation speaker? And I was actually invited to speak at a conference uh, run by a church uh, that does not believe in the Trinity, holds instead to oneness theology. And I was somewhat naive at the time, thought maybe I could bring that sort of comment in. It was not possible and uh, it's not something I would do now. I would only, I would not speak to a non-Trinitarian church on uh, and, and be seen on a platform of, of such a church today. It is important and I believe that it is foundational to uh, the doctrine of creation. It is a primary doctrine. It's so important that uh, I wrote a little booklet some years ago, and here it is. It's called uh, Genesis and the Trinity, and uh, it was all about where, you know, the interface is between Genesis and the Trinity, as it says. And uh, I realized that there are a number of primary doctrines that um, 
we see in the New Testament, uh, we find them reflected in the Old Testament, and we certainly find them founded on the truth of Genesis. And I tried to compile a, a, a list of those. It's not a systematic theology, but it's a list of certain doctrines in this book called Itching Ears. There you go, Itching Ears. Now, in fact, the Genesis and the Trinity book is the first chapter of Itching Ears. Um, I, I just edited it very slightly, but it forms the first chapter of the book Itching Ears. Uh, the book goes through a number of other um, uh, um, doctrines too. For example, Genesis and the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of scripture, sin and death, doctrines of salvation, Abraham in context because of the importance of Abraham, the second coming of Jesus, and uh, then basically conclusion that wraps those things together. So it's not covering every doctrine, but it's covering some of the important primary doctrines. And uh, of course, the um, the title of the book comes from Second Timothy, chapter four, verses three and four, where we read, "For the time will come." When they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Well, I was reminded of the need to talk about the Trinity by two things that occurred recently. One of those was an article, a very good article, actually, by um, a writer on the Internet called Dan Phillips. And uh, his article, I can't remember the title of it, but it was uh, many reasons why Genesis chapter one, verse one is uh, such an offensive verse. And he's right. It is an offensive verse. Uh, actually, that word offensive struck me because of the second um, uh, event which actually happened before that, but the second one that's in my mind at the moment. And it's to do with the fact that uh, as I'm recording this, approximately a week ago, I was visited by two Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, what I want to relate to you is a little bit about the conversation that we had, try and explain to you my reasons for um, talking in that way. I don't think I necessarily did a textbook job, but I'm going to report to you what uh, happened and the fact that the conversation did go on to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And their reaction on the subject is quite important. Now, allow me to let you into a couple of secrets about the way that Jehovah's Witnesses operate when they come to your door. Uh, the first is, uh, they will tend to be dressed smartly. Um, that, that's not quite as critical to them as it is for Mormons, but they will tend to be dressed smartly. But the main thing that I think you need to follow is that there will be usually, not always, but almost always, two of them. In fact, I think there's only one occasion on which I've been visited by a Jehovah's Witness who was on his own. Um, there's usually two of them. Now, this is quite significant because these two Jehovah's Witnesses are not equal in experience. And you'll find this a lot. People join the Jehovah's Witnesses and obviously part of their work that they hope will merit their uh, ability to eventually live on an earthly kingdom in the future as one of the Jonadabs. Um, their, their work 
involves going from door to door and selling Watchtower magazines in order to be able to make a profit for their ministry and to be able to try and persuade people uh, to join the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, clearly, um, new people are going to join the Jehovah's Witnesses. Those people, if they're going to go out and do that work, need to be trained. And it stands to reason, therefore, that uh, when there are two of them who knock on your door, one of them is a novice in training and one of them is an expert. Now, their minor goal, their first goal, really, is to try and make money for their organization. So they will try and sell either a Watchtower magazine or an Awake magazine, two magazines that they produce, or something else. And so it's the novice who's learnt how to do this and to talk about this. And uh, uh, as one would expect, the one who was nearer to the door, the other one standing back a little bit, he uh, wanted to talk about uh, uh, the Watchtower magazine. He didn't actually mention it, but he wanted to talk about uh, um, things to do with society and end times and so on. So I knew immediately who they were. But he did draw out of the bag that he had around his neck a copy of the Watchtower magazine, which he never opened. He didn't get round to that, but that's their primary purpose. So uh, they wanted to know if I thought about such things and the fact that the Bible had anything to say about society. So naturally I agreed on that point that the Bible does have things to say on uh, society and how things work. And uh, uh, there was a little bit of a discussion then on, on that, what the Bible says about people's condition, because they asked me why that was the case, and so I wanted to explain to them that uh, it's because of... Uh, the way that human hearts are uh, and uh, you know that people need to turn to God so that's the initial part of the conversation and we um, a couple of verses of the Bible were mentioned by them and by me as well this was only an initial part we weren't getting into um, major debate at this point but what they did notice was the two of them did notice therefore that I knew the Bible and they commented on it and they will comment on it if you know the Bible and uh, so it was interesting to note then that at that point the Watchtower magazine went away. They didn't produce it again. And it's interesting that throughout the rest of the discussion they didn't produce any of their publications, including the fact that they didn't uh, produce uh, their Bibles either at that point. Because it was clear then that they got this idea in their head that this was somebody who knew at least a little bit about the Bible. So they weren't going to pursue that particular point. Now, the general conversation went on a little bit, but clearly I had an aim in mind with them coming to the door. And this is the aim, I think, that all of us as Christians should have. Um, <clears throat> there is a mission field. We should always be trying, seeking to try and present the gospel to people. And uh, that's true when we're out and about in our normal everyday life. Uh, we need to be presenting the gospel to people. How much more when a mission field actually comes to the door? Because here are two unsaved people. They've got a philosophy. They've got a religion. They've got a detailed strategy. They've got a detailed theology. But it is not one that saves. So they are a mission field. And rather than try and put them down and say, no, I don't want anything to do with you, I wanted to engage them in conversation. Now, I do want you to notice that I did not invite them into the house. And that's quite important. And, and uh, I know there are different people who would argue on this, and I'm not going to say that you're wrong. Um, well, obviously, you, know, you, you realize that I think you're wrong, but um, 
I'm not going to say that you're a heretic for um, inviting them into the house, but I do not tend to do so, and uh, there's a biblical reason for me not wanting to do so. Uh, if, for example, we turn to uh, the second letter of John, um, he talks a little, quite a bit about people who are um, not uh, walking according to God's commandments, people who look as if they're inside the church but who are not. Um, this is what he says. Uh, he says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God got that listen again everyone who goes on ahead in other words people who are following a line building up a theology they seem to have a walk with god um but they do not abide in the teaching of christ does not have god it's a false hope it's a false religion now he goes on to say whoever abides in the teaching has both the father and the son so do you see although the holy spirit hasn't been mentioned there that's two persons of the trinity and it's important that because of the what of what jehovah's witnesses believe on the subject whoever abides in the teaching has both the father and the son if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works now, talking to them on the door does not involve greeting in the sense of accepting what they are. Uh, and therefore, I'm going to present the gospel because it's, uh, it, it's that territory to present the gospel. I'm not going to invite them in and pretend that there is a close connection. But neither am I going to slam the door in the face and send them away. So I'm going to talk to them on the doorstep, which is what I did. So very quickly, I wanted to turn to the gospel, and you know what a fan I am of the teaching of living waters, and the reason why I am is because I believe it's a biblical method of evangelism, and I'm not going to go into the reasons for that now. That would be that would go off on a huge bunny trail. I could do an entire program on that, and what's more, uh, Ray Comfort and his colleagues have done more than one program on that. They've done dozens and dozens and dozens of programs on that. But the point is to get them to see that they are sinners. So I asked them, do you consider yourself to be a good person? And the novice answered that, that uh, he said, yes, he did see himself to be a good person. So uh, I said, you know, the Bible had something to say on that. And it's at that point that I take them to the commandments because the commandments are God's standard on this. So I asked them, have you told a lie? You know, and uh, of course, they have to admit that they've told a lie. Now, it's at this point that the novice stopped answering and it was the expert who took over, because I presume that he recognized where this conversation was going. So I walked them through a couple of the commandments. And, uh, you know, they, they had to agree with me because it's there in the Bible. It's, it's the same as what they would have in their Bible. They haven't changed that particular bit. And uh, uh, they, they um, had to recognize that they're not good people. And so I needed to speak to them about the wrath of God, that God is angry with sin and that that sin needs to be turned away. And it was them who then brought up Jesus that uh, his blood sacrifice had taken away uh, God's wrath. So it was important. That was an important lead in, you see, that I needed to explain to them that, yes, blood was important, but that they couldn't understand why that's the case. So that conversation, what I had in mind now was to talk to them about what the Old Testament said about blood and why the blood of Jesus is entirely different, uh, related but entirely different. 
So we went back to Genesis, which is always a good place to start. And uh, we talked about uh, what clothes Adam and Eve wore. It's one of the things I like to talk about. What clothes did Adam and Eve wear? Well, they knew the answer to that. Whereas if I'm talking to many normal people, they will not know the answer. They will actually answer fig leaves. Of course, these Jehovah's Witnesses knew that, and they said, well, God gave them clothes of skin. And I said, you know, I agreed with them. I said, isn't it, isn't it interesting that most people will say fig leaves? And the reason for fig leaves, because I went on to that, even though they hadn't answered it, is because people think that they can cover their own guilt. Adam and Eve felt guilty before God, and they wanted to cover their own guilt by their own efforts. And I said to them, you cannot save yourself by your own efforts, no matter what. God had to provide skin, had to provide blood. And of course, they agree on that point. They said, yes, it's not our own efforts. It's what Jesus has done uh, and, uh, and so on. Well, I knew I was coming back to that point. So uh, I allowed them to talk for a little bit. They wanted to say what they had to say about Jesus. They actually, actually, they wanted to push it onto the subject of blood. Um, uh, the, the expert at that point said, I, I've been doing this for many years, he said, and uh, you're the first person to have brought up the subject of blood. And he said, um, the subject of blood is very important to us and to our organization. And I said, yes, I know. But I said, you've gone on the wrong uh, angle on this. I said, let's have a look at what it has to say on the subject, why it has to be blood, why there has to be a sacrifice. And I asked another question, which I like to ask to people who have read a little bit about the beginning of Genesis. I said, you know, Jesus described Abel as a prophet, and she does. And they looked a little bit at that. They weren't sure on that, uh, which is interesting, because Jehovah's Witnesses do not necessarily know a huge amount about the Bible. Many people think they do, but actually they've memorized certain points, so they don't know everything about the Bible. And clearly even the expert didn't quite know this bit. So I showed it them where um, Jesus talked about the blood of, of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. And yes, yes, they, they understood that. So I said, well, what's the prophecy of Abel? What's the prophecy of Abel? I said, because you can search through the Bible and you won't find anything that he said. What's the prophecy of Abel? Well, actually, they worked this out. The expert knew, uh, got an answer to this. And he said, I suppose it's the fact that um, uh, God said your brother's blood uh, cries out to me from the ground. I said, that's right. It's the blood that's the prophecy. And therefore, it's a prophecy of Jesus. That's all it can be. It's a prophecy of Jesus. It's talking about a better blood. Now we read in Hebrews about the better blood. Because the blood sacrifice of Abel is just pointing to Jesus. The blood sacrifice of the animals to give skins is a covering. And I said, you know, Adam still died. Um, you know, even however many times he changed his clothes and got new clothes, uh, more animals dying. Adam eventually died. But I said we need a different type of blood that not only covers sin but takes it away completely, which is why the book of Hebrews says that Jesus' blood is a propitiation. Now, this is a word they don't like. Now, of course, they knew what it meant. It's a sacrifice that takes away the wrath of God. And I said, yes, it is. But you see, it's a sacrifice that could only be applied by one person, and that is by God himself. And <clears throat> this is the bit that they don't like, but at least a light lit up. They thought, yeah, yes, here's somebody who's talking about the Trinity. And they recognized that. They said, oh, you're talking about the Trinity and uh, uh, the fact that, and you, you need to know, of course, that the, uh, the word Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible. So they thought they're on safe ground here. They can talk about the Trinity and they can say that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible.
Well, of course, they're correct. The word Trinity isn't found in the Bible. Um, but the, the concept is uh, the word Trinity is simply a word that was invented out of the idea of tri, three, and unity, one. It was an invented word to describe something that was found in the Bible. And this is significant because the concept of the Trinity is found in the Bible. Now, it's found throughout the New Testament. And so we knew that we were on safe ground here. And so I was able to talk to them about Jesus being the Messiah. And they, they you said they're happy to accept that Jesus is the Messiah. And so at that point, when, he, when they say he's the Messiah, well, uh, you know, they, they, they maintain that that means just somebody who's a perfect man, that that's his role. So I took them to Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, we read this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, uh, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, they knew this particular passage. I said the word anointed there means the Messiah. That's the word in Hebrew, Messiah. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible, it says Christ at that point. That's what it says. So... Base, what it is actually saying, um, using a transliteration rather than using the meaning, is the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. That's who it is. So it's the Lord and his Christ. Now, even that they prepared to accept and say, yes, that's what it says. But then, of course, we come, uh, we're, referred to, we're referring this to the Son of God, and they're happy to accept that this is the Son uh, they're happy to accept that that's who it's talking about, that it's therefore prophecy about Jesus. Uh, they're happy to say that. Verse 7, of course, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And of course, they want to pick up on that and say, well, therefore, Jesus didn't exist from eternity past. And of course, I said, well, we can come on to that in a moment. But I said, it doesn't mean that. But I said, we can come on to that in a moment. But what we do need to look at is verse 12. Because in verse 12, it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Kiss the son. And the point is that kissing the son is worship. That's what it means. Because the word worship in Hebrew is actually, actually refers to kissing towards. Not kissing in the sense of holding someone and kissing them on the cheeks. That's not what it refers to. It refers to kissing the feet. That's what it says here. Bow down and kiss the feet of the sun. That's what it's saying. Now you only do that to somebody who is God. Because God has said you will worship no other. And yet here... We are being commanded to worship the Son. So if there is one God, which the Bible maintains that there is, and I will accept that because the Bible says it all through. It's not three gods, one God. There's one God and we're not to worship anyone else. But it says here that we are to worship the Son. Well, that reminds us of other things in the New Testament, which is where we need to go next. Well, that brings us uh, to Jesus walking on the water in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14. And you know the event, uh, Jesus walking on the water. There's a lot can be said about that. But in the aftermath of that, when they're back in the boat, uh, Jesus has uh, rescued Peter. Um, 
Okay, what happens then? Matthew chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of Peter, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now, they didn't like that. But do you notice that Jesus is being called the Son of God, which the Jehovah's Witnesses are happy to accept. Jesus is the Son of God. But here's the point. The disciples worshipped him, and yet Jesus has pointed them towards worshipping God only. But he does not at any point tell them not to worship him. He accepts their worship because the Son of God is God. And this is important. Well, you know, they, they like to discuss this. They're happy to discuss this. They weren't going to agree with me, but at least I could point out to them because I wanted to show them how, therefore, the sacrifice of Jesus um, is, is absolutely essential for our salvation. And I kept coming back to the fact that, therefore, they need to repent of their sins. And I said, you know, this, this is why this is so important, because you are sinners, you are, li you are liars, you are, um, you are thieves, and the Bible says no, uh, that all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. No thief will enter into the kingdom of God. And of course, they like to talk about the kingdom. This is something that they talk about all the time. They say, you know, you can't, uh, no, um, no liar, can, uh, no uh, thief can enter the kingdom of God. Um, th these things are important. So the work that you do, however um, uh, good it seems to be going from door to door will not actually save you it's only the blood of Jesus the acceptance of Jesus and the worshipping of Jesus uh, these things are how you are saved and I think it's important to put that I probably wouldn't put that to many non-Christians because it's something that I would explain to them um, but uh, it's important to see that our repentance and faith means and implies worshipping Jesus. Now, you know, they don't like that. There are other things, of course, that we can go to. There are other passages in the Bible that we can go to. There are things that we can read in Isaiah quite a lot, of course, in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 40, in Isaiah chapter 48, and particularly in, um, I think it's Isaiah chapter 46, and I'm just busy looking into the scripture at this point. Um, maybe I should pause the uh, uh, the recorder and uh, have a look. Well, it says here, um, I am God. This is Isaiah 46, verse 9. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. Uh, so that's emphasizing that there is only one God, which, of course, is uh, is very important. And, of course, we've got that in um, Isaiah 48, where we read again, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit and leads you in the way you should go. Emphasizing again that there's only one God, but, of course, emphasizing that he is the Redeemer. Now, in the very verse before, just before the one that I've just quoted in Isaiah 48, verse 16, this is what we read. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So we've got the Lord God sending the narrator and sending the spirit. But who's the narrator? Well, it's thus says the Lord, the Redeemer. The narrator is the Redeemer. The narrator is the Redeemer. He's the one who's saying, I am the Lord your God. 
And yet he's saying the Lord God has sent me in his spirit. God sending God, but there's only one God. And these passages here, these verses in Isaiah are emphasizing the fact that God is three persons in one God. Only one God. It's emphasized all through Isaiah. There's just one God, not three. But that there is a trinity. Not three manifestations even of one God. Because they're all at the same time. God has sent God. God has sent me, God, out into the, uh, the Redeemer and uh, his spirit. Three persons, one God. Now, you know, they're, they're getting a little uncomfortable at this point, these Jehovah's Witnesses, but that's, um, they're still happy to argue these things because they don't really accept that. Uh, they're saying about how the Old Testament is showing that God is different from Jesus. They're not really sure that, that points to Jesus. And it's at that point, it's at that point, you know, and we're nearly 30 minutes into this program. It's at that point that I brought them to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I said, we see then, having looked at the Trinity through the rest of the Bible, we see that the Trinity is reflected in the very first verse of the Bible, where we say, in the beginning God created, because God is Elohim, which is a plural word. In actual fact, it must mean at least three, because it's not just the Hebrew doesn't just have singular and plural. It has singular, double and plural. So the plural must be at least three. Now the context shows that it's exactly three, but it must be at least three. And that's Elohim. So it doesn't mean, but it doesn't mean God's created because what we then have is the verb created, bara, and that's in singular form. One entity created. Elohim, triply plural, created god's created and at that point the expert jehovah's witness became very angry he did not like that that is where he found it offensive just like dan phillips article said it is the most offensive verse in the bible that is not what it means he said it is not what it means it's a magisterial plural uh, it's like Queen Victoria saying, we are not amused. It's uh, the fact that royalty, so it's a plurality of royalty. He says, every Bible commentator will say that. You will not find a Bible commentator that doesn't say that. Every Bible commentator uh, uh, will say it's not to do with plurality. And I said, I'm sorry, you are wrong. Many Bible commentators agree with what I say. And they say. No, no, Bible commentators don't believe that. Even Strong's doesn't believe that. Well, I did not have Strong's with me. I haven't got Strong's memorized, I'm afraid. So I looked it up in Strong's later. And although Strong says that that is a legitimate translation of that word, it is not its primary meaning. The primary meaning that it puts first is the plurality. And you find that all the time. Remember that you do not translate one language to another absolutely word for word. We try and be as word for word as much as possible, but one word can have a couple of meanings. And what some people often do is they think when you've got a, a number of meanings, what's called a semantic range, that you can choose which meaning you want in any context. No, you can't. The primary meaning is what you will always use unless the context is different. It's only the context that gives it another meaning. You find the same thing in English. A word has a main meaning. And you can only make it mean something else when the context shows you that it should mean something else. 
Its primary meaning is obvious, but context may give you a secondary meaning. If there is no context to give it a secondary meaning, it's obviously going to be the primary meaning. And that's the case here. The primary meaning of the word Elohim is a plural, a triply plural word. It's as if we're saying gods, but it can't be gods because the verb has to agree with a singular so it's created can only be done by one single entity. So you see what we have. We have a statement of the Trinity in the beginning. God, with a triply plural word, created, singular. Trinity is all it can mean. And as I said, you don't derive the Trinity from that verse. That's not teaching us the Trinity. The point is the Trinity is taught elsewhere and we see it reflected in that verse. Well, that's where they're getting angry and they wanted to find a reason to go. So I had very little time left and I just wanted to reiterate to them the fact that they're sinners, the fact that their works, selling watchtowers and awakes and going from door to door will not save them, will not even give them a sort of coattails dragging into the kingdom as Jonah dabs. There is no method of salvation for the uh, the life to come unless they accept unless they re accept that they are sinners that they are not good people they are wretched in God's sight and they need salvation they need propitiation by the blood of Jesus that only the son of God the second person of the trinity can produce and the reason for this is that God has been God for all eternity never changing Many people like to quote to say God is love, which is only found in one place, of course, in 1 John. But one place is enough. It's true. God is love. But how could God be love if he existed for eternity past up until the point where creation he decided to create? How could that be the case if there was nobody else around? You know, a children's Bible that I once read as a child tried to put it in a jocular manner and said God was lonely so he decided to create a world and put people in it no God was never lonely God was always Trinity there was always Father there was always Son there was always Holy Spirit three in one and ever learning self-contained self-consistent you see God doesn't need us he chose to make us because that's his divine sovereign will but he doesn't need us as we read in Psalm 50 uh, you, uh, God says you thought I was altogether like you yes we might be made in the image of God but we're not altogether like God he is other you know that even and again in Psalm 50 that he says if I were hungry I wouldn't tell you God is in control, God is sovereign, and he doesn't need us. He never needed us from eternity. He was completely self-sufficient as God. A loving relationship, because God is love. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Father. They all love each other. One God for all eternity. It's difficult to grasp the Trinity sometimes, but there's one being, three persons. One being, three persons. But we cannot understand the God of love unless God is Trinity, because that cannot make sense to us. So when God came and created this world, it tells us that it's that God with that nature, that eternal loving nature who has made this world and made it 
the way that it is, made it actually to be perfect. A world spoiled by the sin of humans, but a world that God had made out of love, out of majesty, out of his creative power, out of his omnipotence, out of his sovereign will. And that's why that verse is the most offensive verse to so many people. It offended those Jehovah's Witnesses who could not get away fast enough. Could not get away fast enough. Really, I got the impression that the expert Jehovah's Witness did not want the novice to stay and listen to this theology. He'd been happy to engage in conversation as a means of training the novice Jehovah's Witness. But as soon as he grasped this, he knew that there was something there that's true. Maybe subconsciously, because he would not want to accept it as true. But in his heart, he would know it's true. Because what the, uh, what's known about God is clear to see from creation. It's all clear to see. The novice could have seen it if he'd stayed longer and had time to talk. But the expert wanted to drag him away. As they parted, I told them I would pray for them. And I did. Because it's only through prayer that that novice JW, and maybe even the expert JW, will come to see that the eternal Trinity God from eternity past, made this world, made it in the way he did, and that our sin can only be dealt with through the death, the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead and the fact that we should worship him. We put our trust in him and that means we worship him and we do so for all eternity. That's the only salvation there is. There is no salvation through the Jehovah's Witnesses with their theology, with their methodology of selling magazines, with their vague hope, which isn't really a hope, of trying to get into the uh, kingdom to come on the coattails of those who've gone before. They don't even know that they're going to make it. It's a sad religion. It's a hard religion. But do you see that it hinges, or at least that conversation hinged, on the offensive verse of the Bible, the first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created. There's nothing more important for us to know than that and to know that that's why our sins can only be forgiven through the work of the eternal Son of God, eternal Son of God from the creation of the world, from before the creation of the world, who came into the world, became flesh, the word of God became flesh, dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and died and rose again. I hope that that's been useful to you. I hope that there's several takeaways that you'll get from this. First of all, that you'll understand the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. Secondly, that you'll understand the importance of that very first verse of the Bible. Thirdly, that you'll understand the importance of the mission field that comes to your doorstep when Jehovah's Witnesses call and that you will present the gospel to them. Pray for the novice. Look for the novice. Spot him. Try and explain. Not that you shouldn't say, uh, you know, there have been expert Jehovah's Witnesses who've been Jehovah's Witnesses for decades who've been saved. God in his sovereign wisdom can do these things. But those are the patterns that we need to follow. Those are the things that we need to be aware of. Make sure that those are the things that you do. Pray above all. I tell you one thing that I didn't have. I wish I'd had literature there. You know that they want to give their magazine. They didn't offer it to me. 
They don't like to take literature, but sometimes some will. And if I'd had some tracts there, I could have offered them. I didn't have uh, tracts there that would be helpful to Jehovah's Witnesses. That was a failing on my part. Next time someone calls, I will have. Actually, I doubt the Jehovah's Witnesses will call again. They'll make a note of that. I doubt that uh, while I'm in this house, we'll get them again. But, you know, I'm waiting now. I'm preparing for a visit by Mormons. There are different things to talk about with them, but still the same God. The same Trinitarian God who's existed from all eternity and uh, who's put in place the plan of salvation for our sins. Um, the sins uh, are sins that cause him to be uh, a God of wrath against our sins because we've broken his commandments. But a God of love who sent his son to die for those sins and to rise again so that we might have eternal life with him. Well, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for watching if you have been doing uh, the video version of the podcast will be on a different podcast feed from the audio version, so there won't be any confusion. The audio version will be on the same normal podcast feed that we always have. There'll be a video version as well, so check out that when I've done that. And it won't come out at the same time. It'll come out a little bit later than the audio. So have a look for that podcast feed as well. Don't forget, at all, as at all times, keep your podcast software up to date so that you won't miss a single episode of The Mountain and the word. Thank you for being here. God, God bless you. Goodbye. That was The Mountain and the Word, an audio podcast show from the Mount St. Helens Creation Center. For more information, visit our website. MSHCreationCenter.org